Hi, I'm Deb. This is Frankie V. I'm Grant. Hi, this is Phil. I'm Aaron. I'm Steven. Hi, I'm Joe. Hi, I'm Matt. We're Tim and Terry. I'm Susan. Hi, this is Phil. Seminary Dropout is supported by listeners like you and me. Seminary Dropout is supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. It's easy. Just visit supportseminarydropout.com. Just go to supportseminarydropout.com. And I'm your host, Shane Blackshear. Interviews with leading Christian authors, leaders, and thinkers. Let's go. Hello, everyone. If this sounds a little bit different or looks a little bit different, if you're watching this online, that's going to be because I don't have my usual setup. Several months back, I booked this interview with our guest. And during that time, my family, my extended family, booked a vacation. And I had been wanting to talk with our guests for so long, I decided not to cancel it, but instead just make it work. So I'm sitting here in uh, in a bedroom in California right now, and without my usual setup, no, no microphones, nothing fancy, so if it doesn't sound as good as it usually does, that's why. I'm confident we're going to still have a really good interview this morning. So my guest today is Dr. John Barclay, and Dr. Barclay, welcome to the podcast, first of all, and uh, for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, obviously, your your career and uh, what you do professionally, and then anything personally you love to share as well. Sure. So... Um... I uh, let's start with the personal. Uh, I'm married to my wife Diana. Uh, uh, is a retired teacher, and we have three grown-up children in uh, different parts of the world. Um, I uh, grew up in London and studied in Cambridge University, and started my studies in classics actually before I switched to um, theology. I uh, did a PhD in Cambridge with Professor Morna Hooker as my supervisor, and that was on Paul and Pauline Ethics in Galatians. Uh, I was fortunate to get a job at Glasgow University in Scotland. I had 20 very uh, happy years at Glasgow University, uh, working in social history of early Christianity and uh, Jews, uh, a Jewish social history in, in the ancient world. Um, then moved um, from there to Durham. I'm now at, at Durham University in the northeast of England, uh, where I'm Lightfoot Professor of Divinity. I, I followed um, James Dunn, Jimmy Dunn, in, in his uh, role here uh, at Durham University. And I've been here since 2003. Um, and I've taught undergraduate, postgraduate, I had a lot of great PhD students here. Uh, and in recent years, my work's been primarily on Paul, on the theology of Paul, on the theology of grace in Paul, and um, that's what I'm continuing to work on now with a sort of follow-up to, to work I've done before. Yeah. In 2015, you published Paul and the Gift, and this was that was a huge deal in the world of biblical studies. Uh, and theology as well. That's made a lot of a lot of waves and changed a lot of things. It, it was huge. Um, I wonder maybe if we could just start with the word that Paul uses that we translate into grace. I, I think we kind of think of that as a religious term, but it sounds to me like in Paul's day that was that was not a religious term. That was kind of an everyday word that would be used. That's right. Um, um, the word we translate grace, charis, um, it can mean thanks as well as grace. It can mean favor and gift. And it's actually one of a, a, a suite of terms that Paul uses for a gift. And um, it's not a specially religious term. It's used frequently in the ancient world for in, in all kinds of contexts. It, it's a word for a, a gift that carries notions of favor and benevolence, um, but it doesn't have any special religious meaning, and it certainly doesn't mean, by definition, uh, an, an unconditioned or an unconditional gift. It just is a, it, it is a term for 
for gift. And one of the important things for me was to to get my head around this was to uh, put it back in its um, larger conceptual semantic field, which is the field of gift giving. Um, in other words, to, to treat it as one of us, uh, a number of terms that Paul uses for how we give gifts to one another and how God gives gifts to us. And when I put it into that larger context, then I realize I'm not doing a word study here. I'm not doing a study of how does Paul use the word carries. I'm doing a, a concept study. And it's important to make that distinct, a concept study of how does Paul think of gifts and of the divine gift in particular. So that means I could range over lots of texts that never use the word carries. You know, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, that's not using the word carries, but it's absolutely intricately related to other texts that do use the word carriage. And so that helped me to just get clear that I was talking about a concept rather than a, a term. And then I thought I need to understand how gifts work in antiquity. I need to understand the larger whole social domain of gift giving. And that led me down some fascinating paths as I thought, okay, this is a uh, a concept and a practice much studied in history and in anthropology. And um, so I, I loved going into a fascinating field of, of um, the anthropology of gift because it's a really interesting thing, isn't it? We, we give gifts in different ways in different cultures. They come with different expectations. They come with different... Uh, uh, nuances, we give gifts of different sorts, but we, what they represent, uh, how they act in our social relations, uh, are very different across different cultures. Maybe, you know, you or your, your viewers will have experienced that, like a gift in a, in a Chinese culture, for instance, is very different from a gift in an American culture. Uh, um, and so, I thought this is a really fascinating field. I need to I need to explore this a bit more because it may be, and this was a key for me, maybe that some of our modern Western assumptions about what Paul means by gift or grace are uh, distorted. But that our modern Western assumptions may be very particular to us, and we may be distorting Paul by imposing those anachronistically onto Paul. I, that was at least an opening question for me. It's not a wasn't a conclusion, but it was a question like, have I understood Paul aright? Am I bringing the right expectations for what he means? That's a, a starter, at least, yeah. Yeah, no, that's perfect. And, you know, what I was, one of the things I was thinking as I was reading through was uh, how, just how dangerous the, the quote-unquote plain reading of Scripture can be. In other words, when... If I, as a, I, if I say as a 21st century Westerner, uh, this is what gifts mean to me. So then I go and superimpose that onto scripture, then that can lead me astray and, and take me places where Paul wasn't necessarily going or, you know, the scripture writers weren't necessarily going and just how important it is to ask those questions that you were asking about the, the gift and what that meant to people back then. Yes, I think this is one of the values of historical study, isn't it? And uh, it, it helps to relativize us a bit and say, like, yeah, we're part of a long tradition that has interpreted this text, but some of the assumptions that we bring uh, may reflect our own situation, our own culture, and we're in a different historical context from Paul. So one of the benefits, I think, of historical study, it's never the, the be-all and end-all. It's never the only thing you can do with the Bible or should do with the Bible, uh, particularly in a theological framework. You, you have many more things to do than history. But history and historical um, understandings of ourselves, uh, as well as of the past, can really help uh, uh, open our minds to... Um, possibilities that we would we would have closed off otherwise or we would have rushed too quickly to an assumption that this text just mirrors back to me what I what I thought it should say and um, it's very helpful I think to 
just uh, do the the careful historical work to say, I need to understand first what these sort of texts might have meant to Paul and to his first readers and hearers. And that might open up new possibilities for um, hearing these today. So one of the things that you did, one of the undertakings was laying out a, a taxonomy of how a gift is perfected. That's the, the terminology that you use. In other words, the if we got to the, the essence of a gift and take it to its logical conclusion, and you come up with, with six, perf- what you call the perfections of grace, and they are, and these are not in order, uh, incongruity, non-circularity, superabundance, singularity, priority, and efficacy. Did I get all those right? Yep. Yep. Definitely. Yep. Well done. <laughs> so incongruity would be the the size or the abundance of the gift. Is that correct? Uh, no, in- incongruity is about the mismatch between. Oh, that's superabundance. The, yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. So superabundance is about the size or the or the um, um, yep the the whole kind of dimension of the gift. Incongruity is about the mismatch between the worthiness of the recipient and the and the and the character or the quality of the gift. Because, th- and this was important for me um, in. Many ancient contexts, not all, but in many ancient contexts, um, the goodness of a gift is tied to the fact that it's given to the appropriate recipients. To the uh, now, what makes them appropriate might be to do with their age, to do with their uh, ethnicity, to do with their social status, to do with their gender, to do with their educational formation, and so on. So. Um, it was kind of assumed, because of the hierarchical ordering of ancient society, it was kind of assumed that the only give, really, as it were, the high-quality gifts to quote-unquote high-quality people. And the high-quality people, of course, are defined by those at the top as people like themselves. Uh, so that, you know, it, it, it really struck me reading Philo, the, the Jewish philosopher, that you know, he said, well, God gives certain gifts like rain and, and, and sunshine to everybody because, of course, they have to be given to everybody if they can be given to anybody. But God's best gifts, yes, as God's best gifts are going to be given to those who are worthy of them or fitting recipients. And that's going to be, and then you watch what Philo said, well, who exactly does he think is that? And it's people who are uh, educated, who are free, who are male who are have got good rational processes and you think oh Philo you mean people like you then do you <laughs> not surprisingly we all define we all think we're the best recipients of God's gift and so uh, this strikes me as very interesting because in other respects Philo was very like Paul and saying God is super abundant and God gives generously and f- and fully to to uh, to the world but I thought, well, but Paul wouldn't agree with Philo on that, that God gifts uh, gifts, uh, gifts discriminately. In fact, Philo's examples, uh, when Philo's very worried by Old Testament examples where gifts seem to be given to unworthy people and says that God must have known their character was such or there would be such as to be the proper recipients of these gifts. And I think there's something striking going on here in that Although they share the language of gift, even the language of charis, charites, plural, uh, there's something different here about where they draw out the essence, or as you say, the the extreme of, of, of the gift. And that made me realize, okay, so when people talk about gifts, they may perfect them, they may draw them out to that extreme point in different ways. And it's not enough to say Philo has a... You know, believes in God's grace and Paul believes in God's grace so they're just talking the same language and saying no but believing it is one thing even believing it a lot is one thing but how you draw it out its dimensions how you draw them out makes a big difference well and you do a good job of showing that how Augustine wants to perfect it in one way and Thomas Aquinas wants to perfect it in another way and we, and I think we see this today. I mean, you can see it today with modern, you know, celebrity pastors who uh, 
uh, want to draw it out and then accuse someone else of not truly believing in grace when they're really just talking about perfecting it in different ways. Absolutely. Yeah, that that, that was very important for me to say, because once I'd drawn up this kind of taxonomy, I thought, like, this can help explain why why theologians disagree, why, as you say, uh, pastors and, and Christians of all, of all kinds can disagree. Uh, they think it's because one person believes in it more than another, but actually it's because they're drawing this out in different ways. Um, and they've got different dimensions of this grace concept that they have, as it were, it's like a thread. They've, they've tugged on it to, to the, you know, to the, to the end point, as it were, as far as it'll go. And there's a logic to that, but it's not necessarily the only, uh, and you could argue about whether it's the best way of drawing this concept out. Well, and which what makes it all the more important to go back and ask the question, how is Paul interested in perfecting grace? Exactly. Exactly. So you touched on a lot of stuff there that I wanted to cover. But one was, uh, why, you know, Philo, uh, he doesn't believe in the uh, indiscriminate giving. But Paul does. And this is why what Paul's saying is is radical, is... A big deal. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm not claiming Paul is the only person in the ancient world, you know, to, to share that view, or, or the only um, Jewish writer, because I'm, you know, I, I do point out there are some Jewish texts that certainly sound very like Paul in, in, in perfecting the incongruity of grace. So I don't want to make sort of Paul the exception, but I do want to say that this dimension is so important for Paul. You can see it right across his letters that, you know, despite the fact that he persecuted the church, God called me in grace, despite the fact that the Gentiles to which he goes are, you know, are sinful and are ignorant of God, despite the fact that the whole world is under the power of sin, yet grace is more important, despite the fact we were enemies of God, God takes the step towards us, and so on. The, this, the incongruity of this, the, the gift to the, to the sinful, to the enemy, to the powerless, um, to those estranged from God. That, that is so important for Paul because it enables the, the good news to go everywhere, as it were. There's no boundaries there. There's no ethnic boundaries. There's no social boundaries. You know, and he says to the Corinthians, look at your calling. You weren't powerful. You weren't well educated. You weren't, uh, of great ancestry, but God called you because God is the God who calls the things that don't exist into existence. There is no prior conditions. There's no prior qualifications. And that enables uh, new communities to be, to, to be created because you're now crossing previous patterns of value and of hierarchy and... Um, I think what was really crucial for me was to say, um, to connect up two things here, to connect up you know, a strand that's been important in the theological reading of Paul with the proper insights of the new perspective that Paul's theology has worked out in the context of and for the purpose of the Gentile mission. The, the kind of key insight of the, of, the, uh, of the new perspective was to say, Paul's not talking abstractions, He's not, uh, and he's not primarily uh, or only talking about individuals. He's talking about forming communities, and he's talking about his, uh, his work as an apostle to the to the Gentile world, crossing this ethnic boundary between Gentile and Jew. Uh, but I don't think the new perspective had uh, had really got a grasp fully enough of the theological root, as it were, of that mission of why Paul could go to Gentiles and say, you don't have to become Jewish to be part of this of this community. You don't have to take on circumcision, you Gentile men. And you don't have to be of a certain social class. You don't have, you know, God's gift is to male as well as female, to free as well, to slave as well as free. And I think um, for me, it was like a kind of clicking two things together. Yes, Paul, uh, is fascinated by this theme of, of, of grace, of God's gift given to the undeserving. And yes, that is exactly the root of, of what drives the Gentile mission in Paul and what uh, um, enables him to create these innovative uh, communities. 
so you mentioned new perspectives on Paul. I want to, for those who aren't super familiar, because I think that's a big context of, of especially, you know, when the book came out in 2015 um, and, and now the, my understanding is there, there are two kind of big camps, the new perspective and the old perspective on Paul. Now, my understanding is, and I think people who probably grew up in Protestant church uh, recognize this narrative, this idea that Judaism was a works-based religion, uh, you know, earning favor with God, and then Christianity came and was a little more enlightened, and now we have grace. And so things are different, very oversimplification, but, uh, but I think that people will recognize that narrative. And then my understanding is E.P. Sanders in 1977 uh, writes a book that really changes everything and says, actually, Judaism didn't work that way. There's, and as you point out, uh, their idea of grace is all over Second Temple Judaism, and this idea that um, that you had to earn your way into the the community of God and Judaism is not really true. That that God's salvation had priority then uh, was given as a free gift, and now participating in the covenant is what uh, kept you in that covenant. Uh, so, so that's the context to which. You came in, and my understanding is that uh, you kind of you mostly agree with the new perspective. Uh, but and uh, by the way, I have to say, uh, I know that some refuse to say new perspective and must call it new perspectives because okay. there are more than different. one. I've interviewed NT Wright a few times. He's very big on there. It's perspectives. <laughs> There's not just one. Okay, okay, but it, a big camp. We'll, yeah. we'll give it give it that, but that you feel like some in the new perspective wants to um, situate Paul so at home in the Jewish thought to the degree that he's not really bringing anything new to the table. Am I am I understanding that right? And that's your criticism. Yeah, I think. Um, well, what what tended to happen is. Um, the, the the new perspective rightly uh, uh, didn't want to return to this stereotype, really the Protestant stereotype that you've described that the Judaism is a religion of works of earning the favor of God, doesn't know anything about grace, and Paul is the first person who's aware to put grace at the center of the map. I, I think that's uh, rightly been shown to be wrong that 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 way of of interpreting Judaism and. Um, and it's also, you know, um, a caricature that we need to we need we need we need to move away from. Um, what was important for me was to say, as I put it in, I think I put it in in Paul and the and the gift. Uh, grace is everywhere in Second Temple Judaism, but not everywhere the same. Um, so yes, there is important. Emphasis in many Second Temple texts on the grace or the mercy of God, but what that means um, can be played out very different ways. For Ed Sanders and for the pioneers of the New Perspective, what he focused on was the priority of grace. That is to say, the sense that God's gift comes prior to our response. So that's why it's matters of sequence. Of, of what comes first and what comes second, as it were, is absolutely uh, crucial for him. Uh, and I'm saying, well, priority of grace is one thing, but that's not the same as the incongruity of grace. It's not the same as these other uh, uh, perfections of grace. So uh, for me, the crucial thing was to use this taxonomy, this, this, these six different perfections of grace, just to tease out what exactly in the Jewish text is going on in terms of these different uh, uh, aspects of, of grace. And then to say, well, maybe Paul is more, more radical in certain ways than we expected. Not, as I say, not that he's unique, 
uh, not wanted to make some sort of sense of nobody else had ever thought of the incongruity of grace, but that he uh, pushes this, uh, or if you like to change the metaphor, pulls this thread to uh, an extraordinary degree and connects it to the Christ event. It's, but that's, of course, crucial for Paul. This isn't just a general statement about God. This is what God has done in Christ is uh, 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 bring to the world uh, a new a new power of, of, of grace and a grace that does, is not limited by or tied to previous conditions and previous uh, qualifications. So it's a singular event that uh, applies to everybody because it, 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 it's, it's given without, without prior condition. It's unconditioned, as I say. Now, uh, we might want to go on to talk about how it, at the same time, because it's transformative, it has expectations. So it, it carries with it uh, uh, the sense of, of expectations and obligations even. So it's free in, in one sense, in free of prior condition, but not free in this in another sense, which means to say God couldn't care what we do with it, as it were. Yeah, so I guess this would be non-circularity, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so non-circularity, the idea, this is a free gift. Um, nothing is desired or expected in return for this gift. Yeah, and you yeah. point out this is a pretty modern construct and a pretty Western construct. That's right. That's very important for me. That, um, and that's one of the things that the anthropology of gifts and the history of watching how gifts have changed over time was very important for me. Is I realized that actually gifts are the ways uh, uh, normally gifts are the ways in which we create relationships. Gifts are the ways in which we uh, make and sustain relationships, and it, it's the absolute. Um, standard expectation in the ancient world, in Paul's world, that you give gifts uh, in, uh, in order to elicit or uh, with the expectation that there will be some counter gift or some response, maybe a, a, a gratitude, maybe not, not a, a, another thing given back, but it is part of, of, of creating, making, uh, keeping relationships going. So the notion that, for instance, that an anonymous gift is the best gift would be like very odd in the ancient world because what's the point of giving an anonymous gift because there can be no relationship caused or created by, by, by that gift. And so I think, well, where did, why did we turn up in the modern Western world with the sense that a gift should be given with, as we say, no strings attached? Uh, we're very, why are we so nervous about obligations? Why are we so worried about gifts that actually do tie people together. And um, I realize there's something peculiar has happened in the history of modern Western philosophical and economic and social uh, practice um, that has created this idealization of the non-returned gift, of the gift that's free of any expectation of a, of a return. And this was important for me because um, it seems to me that Paul, um, we, we need to distinguish between two things, a, a free gift that's given without prior condition and a free gift in the sense that it carries no expectation. And I think Paul's absolutely, the gift is unconditioned in the sense that there's no prior conditions, but it's not unconditional if we were to mean by that, uh, given with no expectations of transformative change and of relationship change because it seems to me the gift and this is where the relational aspect is so important in a sense grace for Paul is not a thing it's a relationship uh, grace is uh, you might say a person it's 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 the gift of Christ himself in self-giving and self-bestowing to 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 us so that it's not a, like God hands over a, a particular object, as it were, to us, that there you go, now you do what you like with it. It's God's coming to us, offering himself to us in Christ. And to receive that is to be changed. Uh, you, you cannot be the same again, uh, because you're now reconstituted in, 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 in this new relationship to God in Christ. And that's why Paul can say things like you're under grace and you're slaves to righteousness. And you, you know, he has all these imperatives, uh, which are not because 
there's a new law as it were but it's just because like the spirit changes you and this is the way you should you should you're you're expected to be changed yeah i think that there's a lot to unpack there and especially i mean i don't know how many times i've heard in churches pastors explicitly state the unconditional part meaning after nothing is required in return and yeah i think that there's been i think for most of us there's been something that doesn't feel exactly right about that and and also i think we've seen the fruits of that with the kind of cheap grace and the kind of disciples that that theology produces that's right yes i think that's right i think it, it can be heard as, as 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 very very undemanding and therefore you know this is all all uh um you know, uh, this is all uh, forgiveness and and uh, freedom, and uh, of course, we don't want to introduce any new law. We don't want to introduce anything that looks like a kind of a new form of of moral expectation or social expectation. And then you get very very shallow discipleship, don't you? You get people whose whose kind of um, depth of 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 change in their lives is very very. Um, it's very it's very limited and also we have rightly emphasized that we cannot earn our way into god's favor into the family but then i think we've done it in a way that makes us not be able to understand that our works are a part of our uh right standing before god and I think in a way that it's kind of we've made that orthodox where any if we say works are actually, you know, a part of of this thing, that sounds unorthodox because of the the way that we've situated um, works and, and confused it with earning. Yes, I think that's right. And so we're not we're not we're not we're not um, working in order to win a second grace or to win the final grace that's you know still in the balance as it were it's not it's not like there's something still uncertain and insecure that we have to attain uh, it's that uh, the, the 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 transformation of being incorporated and participating in Christ um, uh, is 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 so uh, multi-dimensional and so profound that uh, we cannot remain the same, and therefore it it impels us, as it were, it it it, it evokes from us and impels us into uh, new patterns of behaviour. Uh, I think it is partly a kind of a Protestant tendency to focus only on interiority and to, and, and to our sort of individualism. It's about Jesus and me, and as long as my relationship with Jesus is right, then my patterns of behavior you know, and my, my works are kind of a secondary. And it seems to me that's uh, a reduction of, of understanding of salvation to, 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 to a, a, a dangerous degree. Of course, it's about our individual relationships with God, but that will transform our relationships with others. The grace that we received, receive is passed on, is poured out uh, to others. Our our whole um, patterns of life, our whole um, behavioural, the shape of our of our lives and our priorities and our moral uh, uh, preferences and our emotional life and just everything about us is is, is is reshaped by this and um we cannot allow kind of spirituality or my piety as it were to be separated off from my economic practice my social practice the way i build community the way i behave to my family my students my all of my relationships are caught up into this new self because christ is an all-encompassing uh, redefinition of, of, of who I am. Yeah, it's a very dualistic mindset of maybe if I can just believe the right stuff in my head and then yeah. maybe my body will follow, maybe not. Right, uh, right. Which, seem, which, which seems, under, I don't know that that would make sense to Paul or the early church. Absolutely not. That's right. You know, kind of present your bodies as a living sacrifice. But I appeal to you by message, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So Paul expects our whole physical comportment and our, what we do with our bodies. That means what we do with our money, what we do with our, in our families, what we do uh, 
in all our social relationships because our body is the way we we express our sociality um, these are all yeah changed transformed and that's why you know all his letters end with 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 um, or, or, or if they don't end with them are packed with um, uh, instructions about how you create new communities um, and not just about how you how you do your individual piety. I noticed an interesting footnote in your book. I think this was actually Paul and the Power of Grace, but you probably was probably in Paul and the Gift as well. Uh, where you you brought up uh, Matthew Bates in his Salvation by Allegiance. And uh, I was surprised to see, because I really felt like your works were very complimentary, I was surprised to see that you uh, you don't seem to really like his, um, his translation of uh, faith, Epistus, what, what, Epistus, which generally gets translated into faith, into allegiance. Uh, and and Matt's been on this show a few times, and we've had the the reason it's surprising is we've had uh, Matt and I have conversations that are very similar to the ones that you and I are having right now about embodied faith. So I was kind of surprised that you had a little a little pushback from Matt. Yeah, I think I am very close to Matt in in, in lots of ways. Um, I think I'm what I'm nervous about is. Um, I think the word allegiance um, it it indicates um, was or might indicate that um, the weight, as it were, falls first and foremost on us. Um, you know what it seems to me what pistis means in Paul is trust, uh, and that out of that trust, of course grows uh, um, our um, allegiance to the one in whom we trust. But um, it's almost like the, the first question is what, as always, what, what, what God has done. And, and then the next question is how that wraps us up into what God has done. Uh, uh, so if we, if we put too much emphasis on that, what how we respond to what God has done without without equal and prior emphasis on what God has done in Christ. Um, there's a there's a there's a, there's a possible danger in that. So that we're we're agreed I think on many fronts, but um, what I want to say is kind of what are we what are we being what is our allegiance to and everything that we have um, and everything that we are draws from is I'm sure Matt, uh, Matthew Bates. I'm sure. I'm sure he'd agree with this. So we're, we may be splitting hair over terms. I'm sure. I'm sure he'd, he'd agree with it. But I guess what I want to keep saying is, everything that's transformative in us is 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 responsive, is an echo of and a, and a consequence of the, the the gift of God in Christ. Yeah, yeah and I and I. I picked up on that in your work, and it seems like, and I appreciate this, you really want to emphasize, it seems to me like the gift of grace is given, uh, it's given under no condition, no prior condition, um, but and also the gift itself is what enables us to reciprocate, to to bring back the circularity. In other words, the gift of grace is given to me, and I use that gift to follow God with my body. And it's not—it's not that it's coming. In fact, that that gift is needed to uh, to reciprocate. Exactly, exactly. So it's not a case of God gives us something and then puts us under some you know, new impossible obligation and out of our own resources, we find some way to return the gift. It's like this gift is so uh, radical and so transformative that it changes me into a giver, as it were, into a giver back to God. You know, like, like Paul says about the Corinthians, they gave themselves to the Lord. Who are those selves that they've given? It's the selves that's already been transformed, as it were, by, by, by the gift of grace. So, um, 
that that's that's uh, that, that's important for me because I you know I can see why Protestants have been anxious about the language of obligation and debt and so on because it sounds like you're just loading on Christians some some sort of new set of moral demands uh, that they're not equipped to do or that or that just seem like an impossible uh, a demand or just as it were heavily loaded onto them and make them feel guilty for not doing them and, and it, it, there's a there's a proper instinct I think in the Protestant tradition to say always if you're going to talk about obligation if you're going to talk about command if you're going to talk about that always start first by talking about the gift of God is such to me that he as you put it he enables he empowers me he changes me such that he, that that this is now how I how I live and how I should behave yeah, I was trying to think of, as I was reading, I was trying to think of a metaphor, and this is very imperfect, but it's kind of, it seems to me, it's kind of like, if you give me knitting needles and yarn, and I give back to you a sweater, is that, that enabled me, those, it's not, the gift was not disconnected, my reciprocal gift was not disconnected from your gift. It was actually empowered and embodied and animated by your gift. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's helpful. I mean, obviously, you know, it's hard to get this, get the metaphors right, because of course that doesn't, that's a thing that's given, as it were, and, and there's something more profound and deep that we receive in Christ. It's not just a thing in which we return to Christ. But um, yeah, I think I think that's that's helpful. That's why the language of the Spirit, it, you know, the language of the Spirit is so important to Paul, isn't it? It's like God's, we have the Spirit of the Son. Uh, such that we live in the Spirit. It's like Christ now, through His Spirit, living in us and through us. So it doesn't mean we don't still act. As we don't have to play off the agency of God and the agency of ourselves, or the Spirit does it, I do it. Yes, both of those things are happening at the same time, as it were. In fact, it, Christ's Spirit enables us to be the true selves we are uh, meant to be. Um, and, to, and to be the true agents we're meant to be, um, but uh, it's that sense of the of the remade uh, self that's 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 really important. Yeah. I, I want to ask you real quick. You know, as someone who is a, a very much an amateur, you know, I read biblical scholars and. You know, a lot of times my attitude is, uh, well, you know, you're the scholar. I can only assume that you're correct in these things you're saying. And then it becomes problematic when I read another scholar and they disagree with that first scholar. <laughs> There's a part of me that wants to say, hey, you all just get together and decide, like come up with some things. <laughs> so in that vein, and that's that's partly why I asked you about. Uh, Matthew Bates and Salvation Legions alone, but I know that that also you have. Uh, although I feel that you have uh, a lot of affection, a lot of agreement. I know that you have some pushback with N.T. Wright and his uh, some of the things that he he says about Paul as as well. What what would you say are kind of your uh, areas of contention with N.T. Wright and his Pauline scholarship? Uh, yeah, I mean I. Tom Wright and I, I go back a long way. In fact, you know, he he taught me when I was a student. So uh, you know, and uh, he's he's been a great inspiration to me. Uh, um, and uh, I share a, a lot uh, with him. Um, I think uh, I've not always been persuaded by the ways he draws these sort of mega meta narratives uh, and connects everything. I think Paul does work in narratives, but not always in. They're not all parts of a single meta-narrative in the way Tom Wright puts it together. I've felt he sometimes exaggerated the significance of the Roman Empire in Paul's thought as well, that uh, that Paul he almost gave it more significance than Paul himself gave it. You know, uh, the, for Paul, it's just like, oh, another human regime, but it's part of a sphere of, of sin, and it's not like, oh, the Romans are the real problem in this world today. <laughs> uh, so... I think uh, you know we've 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 differed on some things like that. Um, I think for me, uh, you know, and maybe this isn't a point of real difference, but for me, the um, the it's, it's important to get the depth dimensions, as it were, of Paul's theology, which for me reside in this sense of of the 
of, of, of the grace of God in Christ, which isn't just a kind of a phrase that just floats there in, in Paul's theology. It, it takes you to the inner dynamic of what makes Paul's theology uh, tick. So in a sense, I think for people like Tom Wright and Jimmy Downer and others, it's like the word grace, they wanted to avoid it because it just sounded like that old dichotomy between Jewish works and Christian grace. And they thought, oh, well, maybe maybe that's not the issue. And for me, I don't want to reinstate that dichotomy. I don't, I, that's, as I say, there's grace everywhere in Judaism, but the way Paul configures grace and the way it, 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 it shapes his ethics, it shapes his social practice, it, it, for me, that kind of like, ah, oh, that gets me to the real heart of what's going on in Paul. And um, I think if we can get that right, a lot of other things in Paul's theology, you know, fall into place. Well, it seems to me, and I know N.T. Wright and, and others would agree with this, but what, but if, you know, Paul's included in our canon for a reason. If he's just repeating everything else that's around there, why are we still talking about him today? You know, uh, it's there's got to be something something special there. Well, um, as we're wrapping up, you know, one of my one of my frustrations is it feels like a lot of times scholarship is painfully slow to filter its way down into the pulpit, into the churches. And I wonder if you've seen if you've seen it happen, if you've seen, uh, you know, uh, a change of how people are preaching, teaching about grace, you know, based on all, all we know now about what Paul would have thought about what grace was, what, what a gift was. Mm. Well, I, I hope so. And people have said to me that they found this really helpful in the pulpit and in the life of, of churches. I mean, the reason I wrote Paul and the Gift, which was a big, hefty book with a lot of Greek and Hebrew, uh, was to try and you know, redirect scholarship. But I realized that it's too big and too hefty for, 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 for most pastors. So uh, Erdman's, uh, I think, helpfully persuaded me, write a shorter version of this. And so Paul and the Power of Grace, um, which which you mentioned earlier is a much more accessible book. I hope um, it gets the main points, but it puts it in a way that's I, th I hope more accessible. Um, but I also, f uh, you know, included in the en end of that some suggestions about how this you know could be relevant to the life of churches. Um, I think. I, well, a lot of people have said to me, you know, this really preaches, and also this really helps us think about um, Christian discipleship and Christian church formation, so on. I'm, I'm, I'm going on now to write more about the circulation of grace within Christian communities, how grace, divine grace, sort of reshapes community and forms what Paul calls solidarity, koinonia, um, fellowship, communion, whatever term we use there. So... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to think it through in terms of Paul's um, uh, ideas about, uh, about, about the church. Um, but I'm hoping, um, you know, I've, I've given a lot of public lectures on this in different parts of the world and people have, have sort of resonated with it, I think, and, and said they found it helpful for all, all kinds of purposes. So... I agree with you. If, if if theology is is going to be is going to be of any use, it's got to be able to uh, get outside of the outside of the university or outside of just the, the classroom. It's it, it's got to be uh, translatable into um, terms that people can understand. Well, my last question was going to be, and you may have alluded to it, was what do you have anything else coming down the pipeline? Are you working on anything right now? Yes, certainly. So, yeah, I'm, I'd always intended to think about grace in Paul's letters, not just in terms of divine grace, the, as it were, the vertical, but also the horizontal. Uh, um, so Paul and the gift was always intended to be sort of the first of a two-part thing. So I'm working on the second part now. Something on, uh, I'm not, I haven't quite got the title yet, but maybe the circulation of the gift or the, uh, the gift in circulation. It's about how the gift... Uh, then the divine gift then 
uh, is embedded and embodied in um, social relationships. So it's got economic dimensions to it because for Paul, it's you know, as you can see from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the, the, the language of grace and gift um, uh, works its way through into uh, economic relations between the Corinthians and the uh, Jerusalem church. But it, it's so I'm thinking a lot about ancient poverty and ancient the ancient economy and how community how the poor supported one another and how Pauline Christians are expected to uh, sh support one another. So not top down or one way giving, but giving more horizontal and mutual and interdependence in the community. So I'm thinking about grace in that connection. I'm thinking about. Um, Paul's theology of, as I say, solidarity, and um, that's so. That's those are the things I'm, I'm working towards. Another another book, um, maybe not quite as big as he and hefty as Paul and the Gift, but something along those lines. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. Well, even just as you were talking there, I'm thinking I could ask you questions for hours, uh, but we'll we'll just have to have you back sometime, especially after that uh, that next book comes out. Uh, Dr. Barclay, I've been so excited about this interview, and it's been a real treat for me to sit here and talk to you for a few minutes. So thanks for making the time. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for your good questions. And uh, yeah, thank you. This has been a privilege for me. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Seminary Dropout. Remember, you can find all the show notes for this show and all shows at shaneblackshear.com. Oh, and hey, have you ever thought about starting your very own podcast? I bet you have. And I think you should do it. In fact, I've created a course just for you to teach you everything that I've learned over the last couple of years producing Seminary Dropout. So if you're interested in podcasting and want to learn how, Go check out my course. You can go there by typing in podcastingforeveryone.org. And you can get a special discount by typing in the discount code Seminary Dropout, all one word. That'll give you 25% off. So go check it out. If you have any questions, let me know. Okay. Thanks to those that left ratings and reviews on iTunes this week. Remember, that keeps the show front and center. Also, remember, you can find me on Twitter at at beard on a bike that's at beard on a bike also i'm on facebook facebook.com slash shane blackshear one two three and remember that seminary dropout is listener supported you can visit support dropout.com and press become a patron Remember, this music you're listening to right now is by D.L. Rossi. You can find him online on iTunes and at dlrossi.com. All right. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of Seminary Dropout. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Love you. Take care. Yeah,